This is case 45 from the Shoyoroku. The introduction. <clears throat> A manifest koan depends solely on right now. The fundamental family style does not go beyond the fundamental. If you forcibly set up divisions and foolishly expend efforts, it's all drawing eyebrows for chaos, putting a handle on a ball. So how is tranquility achieved? The main case, attention. The Sutra of Complete Awakening says, at all times, do not produce deluded thoughts. Also, do not try to annihilate deluded states of mind. In the realm of false conception, do not apply knowledge. And do not find reality in no knowledge. The verse. Magnificent, clearly outstanding. Clamor pierces the head. Walking along in tranquil places, underfoot, the thread is cut, and I am perfectly free. The spot on the mud, the spot of mud on the nose is gone. You don't need to chop. Don't be disturbed. A prescription written on a thousand-year-old paper. So since the beginning of our last Ango, last year, we've been engaged in the study of the Diamond Sutra. And although the original intention was to conclude it roughly within one Ango, it didn't happen this way. And I think it's quite interesting It's that it took on, in a way, its own life, an organic way. And we started with the intention to cover a certain amount of chapters each time we got together. And then we decided, without deciding, that we need to take our time with it. And it's, it's a very good way to see how <clears throat> the practice is organic, actually, because the heart of the, or the, the main point of, of the Diamond Sutra is the main point of our practice. What is trying to shed light on is what we're all working with. In all aspects of practice, are no aspects of practice, right? Everything we do can become something. And the sutra says, no, simply no. Whatever arises, no. Whatever subsides, no. All of it, practice, no practice, know as do not dwell. 
see it, recognize it, acknowledge, experience, but do not dwell, period. It's a challenge. Because our tendency, our, our deepest, one of the most profound tendencies we, we can ever come across is the tendency to dwell. It is so deep that even when we go through layer by layer by layer of seeing it and opening up further and further, there is still a tremendous amount of energy that comes over us and sweeps us and takes us back to dwelling, back to grasping. So how do we express non-dwelling? Or how do we experience non-dwelling? Well, the definition of dwelling is a place of residence, which is typically made up of a structure, walls, roof, windows, doors, a place that provides us with a, with a refuge, a shelter from the outside world. My place. A place which I arrange the way I want to arrange it. A place that protects me from what's out there. And in terms of Zen practice, what we refer to as a dwelling place is actually not much different than what we may feel about our homes. It has to do with our fixed attachment to the structure we call home. Right? It has to do more with our attachment to the structure rather than the structure itself. In other words, it arises and becomes solidified within us. The entire process of it arising, it as attachment or tendency to attach, arises in us and it becomes about four walls and a ceiling and a roof. And the feelings are not much different when, we, when our cherished thoughts clash with someone else or with reality. I remember some years ago, I was back in the 80s, I, I lived in Brussels for a few years. We had an apartment and one day we came back and we found that the door was open. We walked inside and some stuff was missing and we realized somebody came in and opened the door and stole some stuff. And it wasn't that terribly valuable stuff was stolen, but there was, for quite a while afterwards, there was a sense of being violated. And it wasn't so much about losing some items. It was more about somebody, stranger, coming in 
and invading our domain, my domain. And it's, again, it's not about what was lost. It's about, it comes down to our attachment to, rather than to the thing itself. And I remember feeling that and then being able to recognize that it has nothing to do with what was lost. And we also have to recognize that in relation to our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, anything that comes up within us, anything that triggered, that gets triggered within us. Is it about the actual emotion that arises, or is it the underlying tendency to want to have relationships with stuff or with thoughts? to want to hold on to them, to want to protect them from others who may threaten them, attack. And we we do feel violated at times when somebody comes and argues with what we think is right. Somebody says, no, you're wrong. What's the first reaction? To defend, to protect, to defend what? To protect what? It's not about what the hand is grasping. It's about the hand that needs, that thinks it needs to grasp. It wants to hold on. Why? Why do we do this? We have to investigate this on the cushion. Why? Why am I making something out of nothing? But before I ask this question, I have to recognize it as nothing. Otherwise, of course, I'm going to hold on to this. Because it's something. And something is fixed. Nothing is not. By nature, it's not. And in most cases, we even take our reactivities for granted. The rising anger. The desire to defend, to retaliate or to crawl into a corner and maybe steep in self-pity. It's not different. All of it actually makes sense. But as practitioners, we practice not taking things for granted, anything. We choose to examine the sense of solidity we experience when Thoughts and emotions arise. It's not we have to buy nothingness. 
and replace it with our sense of somethingness. But what we do have to do is examine the somethingness ourselves. We have to do it. And most of the time in practice we spend sitting, witnessing, silently, in stillness. And of course the question is, what do you do with that time? Because you can be sitting and making yourself more miserable. Showing up, doing what we do, and getting on a cushion and sitting and not moving is not enough. Not because practice is demanding, it's because it can become facade. And that's not going to lead to anything, any better state of being. It can actually perpetuate and keep us stuck. Is it? as solid as we think it is. You know, we're all vested in different things. And what's important for one is negligible for another, right? All based on thoughts, opinions, feelings. But the desire to grasp or to be vested has nothing to do with our preferences. And it's that desire that we have to examine. Why am I doing this? What do I really think is going to come out of that? I mean, whatever it is I'm holding on to, whether it's a thing or me or our ideas or opinions, all of it, I'm going to have to let go of it, right? quite soon that we all have to let go of all of it. So why not let go now? Why not examine now? Why wait? And desire to, to grasp actually is a universal symptom of a disease that is plaguing our species. And it arises out of a deep yearning to be in alignment. A deep yearning to be at home. But where is home? The answer to this question is found in the first of our 16 Bodhisattva precepts, I vow to take refuge in Buddha. I vow to take refuge in what I am. How could that be Zen practice? How could that be Buddhism? 
how could that be anything? Where are the preferences there? I vow to take refuge in what I really am. Maybe not. Right? Maybe I can do something else. I don't feel like vowing to take refuge in who I am. So we have to ask, do we understand what it is that we're practicing? Do we understand what it means to take refuge? To rest in who we are? It's a a simple statement. But to practice it, it's a whole different story. How do we practice taking refuge? It means I vow to cultivate deep states of concentration and awareness so I can witness the arising tendencies. Because I vow to take refuge in who I am. Well, I am that already. Why am I not feeling it? Then examine the tendencies that take you away from it. We don't have to go anywhere. What are you doing to get away from it is the question. Or to distract yourself from who you are. So I vow to cultivate deep states of concentration. I vow to strengthen the discipline. So I can remain unmoved when thoughts and habitual patterns knock on the door and ask me to go for a ride. And it doesn't matter what the thoughts say. They can say anything. Have we strengthened our discipline to be able to say no thank you? Not now. Try back tomorrow, come back tomorrow and try again. But now I am staying here. But the thoughts are familiar, the patterns are familiar. And of course, it's easy to go with rather than stick around. And I vow to raise deliberate intention to not dwell. At all times, in all circumstances, do not dwell. And it has to be deliberate. Because if it's not deliberate, we dwell. It's a given. So I vow to raise deliberate intention. What we're vowing to do is actually not to get swayed by what we are not, rather than go look for a Buddha or look like a Buddha. If you remember from, from last week, from the book study, I quote it from Seng Chao, who says, A place isn't conscious. The reason it is venerated is because the teaching is there. 
The way rests in people. The way rests in people. You are the way. If you are the way, does it matter where you are? Does it matter what you do? It does, right? Because being the way or having read or, or hear the statement, you are the way, it doesn't do anything. And it takes practice. It takes intention. It takes discipline. It takes falling down and getting up. And getting bruised along the way too. But so what? When we realize that the way rests in people, as St. Charles says, we recognize our ability to be at home at all times is innate. It's not in question. But to truly experience this, we must completely empty out. We have to open up the hand of thought. We have to stop dwelling. Juan Paul says, ordinary people are unwilling to empty their minds. Unwilling to not dwell. They're afraid they'll fall into emptiness, unaware that their own minds are already empty. The fool gets rid of phenomena and not the mind. The wise gets rid of the mind and not phenomena. Because form is no other than emptiness. A bodhisattva mind is like space. You know, each one of those statements is enough to realize. You don't need more than one statement. A bodhisattva mind is like space. If it is like space, where would you dwell? How is dwelling possible? Talking and thinking makes it possible. No talking, no thinking. How do we dwell? The more you talk and think, the more you go astray. Saint Sun, Third Patriarch, trust in mind. Every line, every line, says the same thing in different ways. A bodhisattva mind is like space. A bodhisattva gives away everything. Gives away everything, outside and inside. Such great renunciation is like walking with a candle before you. You can't get lost. Lesser renunciation is like walking with a candle to one side or another or behind you. You're bound to fall into a ditch. You're bound to dwell. You're bound to create and solidify. So this koan brings up four lines 
from a 12-chapter scripture named the Sutra of Complete Awakening. And it really is, those four lines, basic, all-inclusive instructions for Zazen and for mobilizing Zazen at all times. The first line says, be at all times without deluded thoughts arising. To be without deluded thoughts arising. Now we look at it and think, well, that's great, but I can't do that. It's not what I experience. And that is adding thoughts to thoughts. Be at all minds without deluded thoughts. I'm doing it already, is adding thoughts to thoughts. I can't do this, is adding thoughts to thoughts. Simple statement. Be without deluded thoughts. Does that mean to not experience deluded thoughts? Basic instructions in Zazen begin by clarifying that we're not trying to stop the thinking process. It's actually impossible. We are acknowledging arising and vanishing thoughts. We're acknowledging that this is an automatic process. We're also acknowledging that by itself, it's benign. It has no way to create anything. But we can create something from it. Or we can witness it. Thoughts arise and vanish continuously. And by itself, is not an issue. We follow, we solidify. One thought leads to another and another and another and another and we build skyscrapers. Solid, real. I know there is something there. How do you know? I know there is nothing there. How do you know? How do we know? What is a deluded thought? There is nothing else ever going on other than this. Anything that separates us from this essentially is a deluded thought. But by itself, again, it's not separating anything from anything. When we dwell in it, we are experiencing misalignment. We are experiencing separation. And it's very painful. To feel a part of, to feel alienated, to feel separated from the source.
So anything that creates duality essentially is illusory by nature. The second line says, Moreover, with regard to all deluded states of mind, do not try to extinguish them. And there is a second line because the first line, well, they're all deluded thoughts. What do I do with them? I don't want them. I want to push them away. With regards to all, with regard to all deluded states of mind, do not try to extinguish. Do not try to push away. Now, pushing away, I don't want to think about this, actually is, I'm saying that there is something there that I don't want. That's already solidifying. If I don't want it, what am I saying? What is it that I don't want? What gives what I don't want its solidity? Where do deluded thoughts come from? Because if we do see it that way, if we do recognize that all thoughts, all emotions are essentially unsubstantiated, they just arise, but there's no owner. There's no structure. The Bodhisattva's mind is like space. And what does space do? It allows everything to hang in midair, the sun, the moon, the stars, us. We all float in midair, in space. Yet we are so busy concocting stories and structures. Everything has shelf life. Everything expires. Everything disintegrates. Even when it seems solid, give it time. It will disintegrate. It will fall apart. Just observe. Don't push, don't pull. And pushing is rejecting. Pulling is Becoming interested in the thought. So neither pushing nor pulling. Basic instructions in Zazen. Be the witness. Third line says, Dwelling in the realm of delusion, do not add discriminating knowledge. We chant in the Sandokai, Within light there is darkness, but do not take it as darkness. Within darkness there is light, but do not see it as light. I bought a pair, like a foot before and a foot behind in walking. When night comes, only night. When daylight comes, only daylight. Do not add discriminating consciousness. Means do not add any extra. No comparison. 
As Dogen said, when light-heartedness comes, be light-hearted. When dark-mindedness comes, be dark-minded. One is not in comparison with another because the other is also one. Do not add discriminating consciousness or knowledge. And the fourth line says, when knowledge is absent, do not distinguish reality. So you practice for some time. You experience some space, vastness. Knowledge is absent. You don't experience discriminating consciousness. It's great. But then the habit comes back. I experience vastness. Back to square one. Back to the mud. When knowledge is absent, do not distinguish reality. Do not dwell means very simply, do not dwell. And the footnote, it's very interesting because the footnote to all those lines says the same thing. At all times, be, be at all times, I'm sorry, do not produce deluded thoughts. And the footnote says, no. Also, do not try to annihilate the deluded state of mind. No. In the realm of false conception, do not apply knowledge. No. And do not find reality. No knowledge. No. 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 And no. It's actually moo, 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 and moo. It's a magical no that does not reject anything because it knows that there is nothing there to reject. It's a magical no because it includes, allows, everything to come and go freely. Huineng, the sixth patriarch, said, successive thoughts do not stop. Past thoughts, present thoughts, and future thoughts follow one after the other without cessation. Well, is that a problem for us? Is that an issue for us, that we experience succession, endless succession of thoughts. And he says, if one instant of thought is cut off, the Dharma body separates from the physical body, and in the midst of successive thoughts, there will be no place for attachment to anything. If one instant of thought clings, then successive thoughts cling. 
This is known as being fettered, chained. If in all things successive thoughts do not cling, then you are unfettered. Therefore, not abiding is made the basis, the basis of practice, the basis of who we are. We are in nature non-abiding. Then why do we cling? If we are non-abiding, then clinging will be separation from who we are. We'll be creating an illusory us. One instant of thought clings, then successive thoughts cling. So to intercept, to intercept is simply to witness, to know how to be the witness, to know how to not follow, to not link thoughts. If we don't think the thoughts, what happens to them? If we do think the thoughts, what happens to them? What happens to us? The answer is clear. We know the answer. We know what happens. And we don't have to justify it. We can keep teaching ourselves to step away, step back from that process. Not argue with it, but push away and not follow it. It's not binary. It's not, I'm all in or I'm all out with my thoughts, with relation to my thoughts. There is a third option. There is allowing. There is recognition that there is really nothing there, nothing as, nothing substantiated. Course experiences are plentiful. None of them is fixed. And this is what we practice over and over and over again. Dwelling nowhere. Dwelling nowhere. We raise the mind that sees and knows how to cut through our story-making mechanism or habits. Having no fixed abode, no fixed self. We tend to our daily home affairs, whatever that may be. Take good care of the body and its needs. Not going back, not going forward, not going anywhere. And if we practice this way, then are we not home at all times? If we practice this way, are we separated from anything? And remember, it takes one thought 
one thought to be substantiated, that's it. That's all it takes for us to be lost, to feel lost. <clears throat> the pointer says, a manifest koan depends solely on right now. The fundamental family style does not go beyond the fundamental. If you forcibly set up divisions and foolishly expend efforts, it's all drawing eyebrows for chaos, putting a handle on the ball. So how can tranquility be achieved? No, the word koan means public case. And it's called public for two main reasons. First, is dealing with universal experiences we all go through these days and thousands of years ago. So what koans reveal is relevant at all times to everyone. And second, it is always pointing at what is publicly revealed in the open domain. It is pointing to what is always going on. Right here, right now. That's why this is called a living tradition. It's alive. Only as us practicing it. If we don't, it's not alive. And it's alive through our authentic expressions. Natural, unassuming, as is. So a manifest con depends solely on right now. That's the place koan come to life, right here and right now. The fundam fundamental family style does not go beyond the fundamental. The family style is the Zen tradition. It never goes beyond anything. It's here. And by being here, it goes beyond anything we can think about here. If you forcibly set up divisions and foolishly expand efforts, it's all drawing eyebrows for chaos. How are we practicing is probably the most important question. How do we practice? And it's all drawing eyebrows for chaos. There was a Mr. Chaos, apparently. The word translates here as Mr. Chaos is Konton. It means the, the universe itself. There's an ancient Chinese legend that said that Mr. Chaos lived a long time ago and he had no eyes or nose. And it's pointing to our own essential nature. And although it says Mr. Chaos was completely free, others came to him and decided to bore holes for his eyes and nose and mouth which it says resulted in his death. 
And this will be the equivalent of what Christianity will call to sin. To be misaligned. To make something out of nothing. And then to be bogged down by the something we ourselves make. So we die, in a way. Or we are as if dead. Why not leave it alone? Why put a handle on a ball? It's perfectly fine. It doesn't need a handle. Even enlightenment is an extra thumb. Who needs it? The universe is perfectly fine. And so are we. And when, when it is experienced and expressed as such, it's amazing because it shows up as authentic, non-dwelling, buoyant, nimble, agile, adaptable to circumstances and conditions. Of course adaptable because it's not dwelling. Dwelling is the opposite of being adaptable. Nimble is the opposite of dwelling. Shape-shifting. And humble. Of course, humble. Of course, giving. Giving everything to everybody. Not stingy, as we are very often acting. Stingy with our spirits. A life of giving is actually nothing special. You don't have to be called anything or even pointed out at. There's a good example from the Sherlock of Case 22 from the commentary of shape-shifting, ability to move, not creating anything out of anything. <clears throat> One day, Yantav spread his sitting mat, his zabuton, and Deshan, his teacher, pushed his downstairs with his staff. And Yantav went down, gathered up his zabuton, and went off. The next day, he went up and stood by Deshan, his teacher. Deshan said, where did you learn this empty-headedness? Yantav said, I never fool myself. And Deshan said, later on you will shit on my head. Where did you learn this empty-headedness? A bodhisattva mind is like space. If it's like space, where will insult be hung? Any thought has no place to rest in mid-space.
Later on, you will shit on my head. You will surpass. You will expound the Dharma. You will continue, he told him. You will continue my Dharma. You will keep it alive. Verses magnificent, clearly outstanding. Clever pierces the head. It does feel this way. All this noise within, without. Remember, Kweke came to Bodhidharma and said, My mind is not at peace. Please pacify my mind. Walking along in tranquil places, where do we find that peace? Bodhidharma said, yeah, bring me your mind and I'll pacify it for you. Show me, show yourself that it is indeed substantiated. Do the work, examine. You are saying all these things with such conviction as if you know that all of it sits on something. How do you know that everything you say, everything you complain about, is supported by anything? What gives it its life? Your words, your thoughts. What gives your words and your thoughts life? Walking along in tranquil places, this is it. Within the mess. Because when thoughts are realized as unsubstantiated, peace is attained. Underfoot, the thread is cut, and I am perfectly free. The footnote says, walking freely to the land of the immortal. The land of the immortal. Strings, what binds you? An old master said, let go of the gross elements. Don't grasp within the nature of quiescence. Drink and eat as you may. All activities are impermanent. All is empty. This is the great complete awakening of the realized one. To realize that nothing is substantiated, nothing is fixed, nothing stands against anything else. The spot on the mud, the spot of mud on the nose is gone. You don't need to chop. This is from a, a story, ancient kingdom of Ray, China, one day. A man put a dab of white mud on the nose. Then Shoseki, a master axeman, was asked to remove that with his axe. And he did so without hurting the other guy's nose. And what this is saying is that you don't have to resort to such acts. Because we have to realize that the spot on the, on the nose is not, is empty, essentially. 
or is not an obstacle. Nothing needs to be cut off. Not, nothing needs to be removed. It says, do not be disturbed. A prescription written on a thousand-year-old paper. Now is 2,500-year-old paper. A prescription says, do not dwell. Where is the pharmacy that will fill that prescription and give us, give it to us in a small bottle so we can swallow? So the instructions are simple. Do not dwell. How much do we dwell, right? How real it sounds to us when we say it, when we protect it, when we describe and explain why we dwell. How logical it seems. That's why the great physician, the Buddha, what did he say? Do not dwell. When Huang Po, Huang Po is the Baku, Rinzai's teacher, first arrived at Pai Chang, Pai Chang said, Magnificent, clearly outstanding. What did you come from? Huang Po said, Magnificent, clearly outstanding. Not for anything else. What did you come for? He began by magnificent, clearly outstanding. Now tell me, why are you here? And the answer was, magnificent, clearly outstanding. Not for anything else. Magnificent, clearly outstanding. Not enough? Can we realize magnificent, clearly outstanding, and then take care of everyday affairs? And then leave, arrive, go there, do this, cook a meal, pay the bills, go to work. And what happens to all these activities when we realize magnificent, clearly outstanding, beyond anything we can think of. I'll finish with a few words from Seng Zhao, Chinese Buddhist monk from the fourth century, disciple of Kumala Jiva, said, the mind is like water, when it is still, there is no reflection. There is reflection. When disturbed, no mirror. Muddled by folly and craving. Fanned by misled influences. It surges and billows. Never stopping for a moment. It's like trying to look at the flowing stream to see your appearance. It never forms. If you take the movement of mind as the basis, then existence is born. Based on signification. When the reason completes its initial movement, there is no more basis. 
If you take nothingness as the basis, then existence is born based on nothingness. Of course, because duality. Nothing is not based on nothing. This, at this point, there is no more basis. Nothing is not based on nothing. And if that is realized, everywhere is home.